Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. The person who learns most from a lecture is a lecturer. Two principles are less is more and silence is key. There is no difference in learning between lectures with PowerPoint and lectures without PowerPoint. Would you have a podium between you and a friend having a beer? You want me to distill 20 years of practice and preparation and all the work that I've done into 90 seconds on a podcast on how to create a really effective slide? You can do it, man. The teaching of medicine is the most honorable profession. Whether you're a first-year resident or a veteran of EM, you've probably given or will be giving at least one presentation at some point in your career. On the one hand, presentations can be intimidating, time-consuming, and frightening. But on the other hand, if you're prepared and you know the tricks of the trade, they can be fun, educational, and hugely rewarding. Giving a memorable and educational talk requires skill. It requires serious, thoughtful preparation, practice, and creativity. The good news is that these skills can be easily taught. What we know about giving great talks comes from non-medical fields. We can learn about how to use our voices, eyes, and body language effectively during a presentation from actors. We can learn how to build great slides from experts in design. We can learn how to use stories to help engage an audience and improve their retention of the material from writers, broadcasters, and storytellers. We can learn how to inspire people from professional speechwriters, and we can employ strategies to help improve retention of material from cognitive neuroscientists and educators. Now, as EM providers, we're much too busy to read dozens of books on effective presenting. So with the help of two EM providers and master educators, Dr. Eric Litovsky and Dr. Rick Pensner, who have scoured the world's literature on this topic, we'll distill down for you the key secrets, tips, and tricks theories and approaches, pearls and pitfalls of presentation skills, so that the next time you get up in front of your colleagues to give a talk, you'll blow their minds. So welcome, Dr. Pensner. Hello. And welcome, Dr. Litovsky. Pleasure to be here again, Anton. All right. So this is going to be very different than all the other podcasts we've done. Pretty much all of them have been clinical, with the exception of a few. So I'm interested to see how this one turns out. As per usual, we'll start with a case. A first-year resident is assigned to give a talk on whatever topic they'd like at the educational rounds at their university. The last time he gave a talk in front of more than a few people was his fourth-grade speech competition. So before we jump into how to make a great presentation, we first need to talk a bit more generally about pedagogical principles of learning. Dr. Latovsky, what are the important principles of learning that our listeners should remember and abide by in any teaching endeavor that they pursue? Well, first of all, Anton, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And I have to tell you that I haven't scoured the world literature. Uh, I've read a lot about it, and I've taken lessons about giving lectures, but I haven't scoured the world literature. Okay, I, I think I think Rick probably has. I think you Rick, know what? I, I, I think Rick I probably has. has. Sorry, but I haven't. <laughs> Okay, but, but what you, I, you have taken What courses. I have done is I've taken courses, personal co- courses, and I've had a personal coach 
in presentation and giving lectures, which has helped me abundantly. But let's talk about the two basic principles that you must have in order to give a great presentation. And unless you pay careful attention to these two important principles, you will never be a master educator. Listen carefully. So principle number one, people can listen and they can think, but it's impossible to listen and think at the same time. So let me give you an example. I'm going to make this, give you a real example. I'm going to say three facts and I'm going to say it in two different styles. And you tell me which style allowed you to absorb the material better. Number one, people retain 10% of what they read, 20% of what they hear, and 30 to 50% of the combination of both. Now I'm going to say it a different way. People retain 10% of what they read, 20% of what they hear, 30 to 50% of the combination of both. Can you tell the difference? Absolutely. The difference was that if you hear something, you have to think about it. And if the speaker goes on and on and on without pausing, without a moment of silence, you've already lost the listener. So the most important tool you have by far in any presentation or lecture you give is silence. I mean, that's exactly how Miles Davis played. He'd play a few notes, and he always said that it was more about what he didn't play than the notes that he did play. And most novice presenters, novice lecturers, are afraid of silence. In fact, you should just do the opposite. You should embrace silence. The most important thing that you can do after saying something important is pausing. It's critical. That's teaching point number one. The second critical teaching point is that less is more. And you know the whole where is Waldo? You've seen Waldo, that cartoon, but where's Waldo? Can you find Waldo? There he is. And of course, you have a big poster of 500 people, and you're somehow supposed to identify that one little guy who's really important. His name is Waldo. Well, it's the same thing with teaching. If you're trying to identify the single most important teaching point of a lecture, and you're trying to filter it out with 500 teaching points, you're not going to be able to discern out, decipher out the key teaching point that's critical for your learning. It's exactly the same analogy, which means the more you put into a presentation, the less people learn, the less people take away. And the most novice presenters always make that critical mistake of trying to overpack their material overpack their presentations, and the result is people walk away with less information, less critical data. So less is more. 
So unless you understand those two basic principles, you will never succeed as a great presenter. Got it. So two principles are less is more and silence is key. Correct. Got it. Okay. Now, we've got our our resident here who needs to give a talk, and he's been given the choice of what topic to choose. How do you choose a topic in the first place for giving a talk? So I think it really depends on what stage of career you're in. In the first 10 or 15 years of my career, I was willing to speak about anything. Give me a talk on ophthalmological emergencies, uh, general to urinary emergencies, uh, headaches. I would speak about anything because I felt that I was still learning. I was still developing my skills. I was still developing my knowledge base. And I was willing to speak about anything. I thought that was going to make me a better physician and a better educator. And in fact, let's remember that the person who learns most from a lecture is the lecturer. So I was keen to speak about any subject, anytime in the first 10 or 15 years of my career. And then after 15 years or so, then I started to develop my own particular niche. Uh, I became more interested in cardiac emergencies. So I started to write about cardiac emergency and I started to find my niche and developed a preference because that was my academic preference. But I think it's really important for new staff and for residents in particular to be willing to speak about any subject they're asked for. I really do think it's important. Mm -hmm. And what about, if you're going to choose a topic, you know, there's this idea that if you're not passionate about what you're speaking about, then you're going to give a bad talk. To give a passionate talk, you have to be passionate about the subject. What do you you think about that? You know what? Passion can be learned. And uh, you can become pretty passionate pretty quickly about a topic that you get familiar with. Yeah, Dave McKinnon gave this amazing talk on anorectal emergencies that no one wanted to give, and he told the funniest jokes, and it was actually a really, really educational talk. So there you go. I think Dave was was taking exactly what you said in vain. So, Dr. Pensioner, we're going to talk about many aspects of a good presentation But just to give our listeners a general sense of what it takes to do a really killer talk, what qualities in general does an effective presenter need to have? So, Anton, I think it's like um, great eMERGE physicians. I I don't think there is one set of qualities or personality that makes a great eMERGE physician. They come in all shapes and sizes. And I think similarly, a great presenter, lots of different personalities. I don't think there is any one type of style. But what I do think is common to all presentations is that all really great presentations effectively communicate their message. And if the presenter can do that, then I think they're going to have a killer talk. Okay. Dr. Latovsky, any particular traits that you think are key? When you give a presentation, there's two things that you convey. Number one is that you're conveying a particular message, a specific message. The other thing that you are conveying is your personality. And it's your personality that determines the communication that Rick's talking about. And the best presenters have a relaxed, informal style of presenting. The best presenters are sensitive to their audience. Because communication is a two-way street. Communication is what we call receiver-driven. And the best communication always relies on your ability to engage with your audience, 
be receptive to what they're hearing, what they're feeling, what their mood is, whether they're tuned in, whether engaged or not. So the best presenters are relaxed. They are they are uh, they pay attention to what the where the audience is at, and they engage the audience. So the two things that are key to convey in your presentation are one, your message, and two, your personality. So let's say you're starting to prepare your talk. Now, there's a lot of preparation that goes into talks. How do you how do you start to prepare? Like, do you like to use storyboards? Do you start with your slides? Do you sit down with a pad of paper? Do you just start brainstorming? Do you go for a walk in the woods? How, how do you start to prepare for a talk? So, you know, really one of the first things I do is I start thinking. But right after that, I actually speak to other people. I speak to uh, friends and colleagues, and I ask them what their take is on this talk and the type of things they would like to hear during the presentation. After that, I go and I do some reading, uh, reading the gray literature, reading traditional literature, and start trying to craft my message. And then I actually sit down with pen and paper, and I try to write down clearly what is the message that I want to communicate. What's my point, and why does it matter? From there, I actually pull out good old-fashioned recipe cards, and I start writing down a few key themes, and then sub-themes, and then more sub-themes from that. And then from that, it allows me to actually move around the cards and actually do some storyboarding, the sequence with which I want to communicate this. And then I sit down at my computer and I start, I open up a Word document and I actually start typing a narrative for my presentation. And if you notice, I haven't mentioned anything about PowerPoint slides because the very last thing that I do after I've put together my narrative for my presentation is then I will consider, do I require PowerPoint slides or other kinds of slideware to support this presentation? And then I'll create the slides from there. Okay. So yeah, I know a lot of people that start with the slides. So you're you're saying the opposite. Really, the PowerPoint presentation should be the last thing you think of. Absolutely. In fact, as I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more throughout the podcast, if you sit down first with your PowerPoint slides or your other slide where to develop your talk, you're really setting yourself up for disaster. Okay. And Dr. Lutovsky, how do you start to prepare for your, for your talks? I sit down with a pen and paper. And I write down the three messages that people have to take away from my lecture. Three, maximum. Because that's going to be my introductory remarks. It's going to be my closing remarks. And everything in between is just fluff. I kid you not. Everything in between is just fluff. Tell people what the important points are. Tell people what you're going to tell them. Tell them the important points. And at the end, tell them what you just told them. So repetition is important. Repetition is key. And it's critically important for you to identify right at the beginning what the most important take-home points are. And then everything else in the lecture is just building the story, building the sub-points that Rick talks about to develop and enhance those three key messages. I find that sometimes if I sit down at my desk that I usually sit down at, I can't get inspired. And for me to get inspired, I go to different environments. I actually, while I was researching this, I found 
in the book called Slidology, which was uh, a great, great resource for learning how to do presentations, they had a picture of Salvador Dali, the great painter, in his bathtub. And apparently, he chose to use different environments every time he decided to sit down and think about a painting. He would go to some different weird environment, and he found that helped him be creative. And actually, I find the same thing. To mix up your environment a bit, just to get inspired. I do too, especially for my inspiring talks. My best thinking occurs in the shower. <laughs> Great. Okay, so Dr. Pensioner, on your website, rickpensioner.com, you beautifully encapsulated the key ingredients of effective presenting in nine words or three statements. It was tell a story, keep it simple, manage your flow. And th- I think this is a great framework that we can use for the rest of, of this podcast. So let's go through each of these mantras one by one. First, tell a story. Why is telling a story important when, when giving presentations? So, you know, if you think about it, we are, we're really wired to both tell and receive stories. We've been uh, hearing stories from kindergarten and show and tell. In fact, for thousands of years, we've been passing down stories in this oral tradition from tribe to clan to family. And what I think is unique about storytelling is that it engages the audience and it activates this prior experience, this prior memory. So we know that storytelling can... um, you know, send a shiver down someone's spine, it can cause a tear to well up, it can cause your heart to race. And that ability to engage the audience and involve the audience is such a key component of a successful presentation. I completely agree with Rick. The The, the great thing about a story, or in our case, is often it's like a case presentation, which is, which is our form of storytelling, is that it immediately brings what you're going to talk about into the receiver's context into their personal environment. So I completely agree with Rick. A story or in our in our cases, you know, a case often allows people to put what you're going to talk about in their own personal context. Absolutely. I mean, that's what EM cases is all about. So we were talking about how interaction is really key to learning. And some of the effective ways of interacting with your audience was by having some silence and giving them a chance to think about it. What are some other ways that we can make our presentation interactive? So, so Anton, let me start by saying that interactivity is an essential component for adults to learn. They need to be actively engaged with the material that they are learning. And that interactivity doesn't have to be overt, but interactivity should extend to our presentations, whether we're presenting to eight people or 8,000 people. Now, traditionally, we think about interactivity of interactivity between the presenter and the audience member. So that could be like asking a question, but it could be asking a rhetorical question. It could be surveying the audience. So there's some great technology out there with web-based tools and audience response systems are really effective at being interactive between audience members and the presenter. But we can also think about interactivity in terms of interactivity between audience members and other audience members. So, for example, one of the classic methods we use is called a think-pair-share, which works really well in a large group. You ask a question, and then you have the audience members share with someone beside them, and then 
someone from the audience can share with everybody else. You can do buzz groups, you can do debates, you can do panels. But then we can also actually think about interactivity of audience members interacting with the material that they're engaged in. So that could be things like watching a video, hearing a patient interview, or actually asking them to write something down or, or getting engaged or interactive with their handout. So lots of different ways to think about interactivity. Mm, yeah, that, that last one there, actually, Dr. Latovsky, I, I use the method that you use, that you use in a bunch of your talks for my how to read a CT head talk and that I give them a piece of paper that has uh, – we're going to go through six cases and for each case I want you to write down what you see and what the most likely diagnosis is. Just giving them that challenge really helps engage them a lot. So again, Dr. Pensner, you divided it up into three things. So there can be interactivity between the presenter and the audience – uh, by surveying the audience, by asking them questions, by asking them rhetorical questions. And there can be interactivity between the audience and the audience with the think-pair-share as an example. Um, and an interactivity between the audience and the material, like having them actually write something down. And and again, though, it's it's important to remember that the interactivity doesn't have to be overt. So storytelling is a perfect example of engaging the audience and having them to become interactive with the material. But it's not particularly overt in terms of the interactivity. Cool. So you can be creative with these things for sure. And Now, what about asking the audience questions in particular? You know, this, is, this engages them, but you need to do it in a non-threatening way. Dr. Latovsky, what tips can you give our listeners about how to actually ask the audience questions? You know, I've seen presenters who have really distanced themselves from the audience by asking them sort of in a in a way that's that's threatening. And I've seen them just kind of totally fail at their presentation. How, how do you ask questions in a way where you actually engage people? The problem, of course, is that most learners are cowards. Right? Most learners are cowards and are afraid to put their hands up when asked a question. When, so if I am asking a general question, and most of us have that experience, the, is that if, if I ask a general question to a room and say, how many of you uh, want to you know, interpret this ECG? Yeah, I mean, that, that silence you get when sometimes in, invariably, you ask that nobody question, picks up their hand. Yeah, invariably, exactly. People refuse to pick and up And you were talking hands. about silence before, but this is the kind of silence that you don't want. Right? Right, it's you, just you like... Want. 15 but, seconds of silence after you ask the audience a question. So it, it's really important at the beginning of a workshop, especially when there's a lot of engagement, interaction, for you to s tell people why it's so important to volunteer to answer questions. The person who learns most from a workshop or a lecture is the person who volunteers to answer a question. That's the person who learns most. So I think it's really important to encourage people at the beginning of a workshop that if you are not really sure what you're looking at, take a risk, take a pedagogical risk, because you are going to learn the most from taking that risk. I mean, there's so few times to really advance your learning, advance your education. You know, it's really important for us as educators to emphasize to people that it's critical to take risks when you're learning, because that's the time when you learn the most. Try to be myself, 
And and actually, we we can condition audiences to become interactive. So by asking the right questions, by employing what we call about wait times, that's not wait times in Emerge, but wait times in question asking, you can actually change culture and change audiences to them being very comfortable with being interactive. So... Dr. Penser, just give me an example. How does that work? Well, so we know that, you know, typically in interactions between teachers and learners, that when we ask a question, the typical waiting period before we start talking again, waiting for an answer, is about one, one and a half seconds. And in the emergency department, it's like a quarter of a second. Absolutely. <laughs> but but there, there's actually some good evidence that's years old in, in the education literature that says that if we ask a question, if we can prolong that wait time to at least three seconds, but ideally upwards towards seven seconds, we will actually increase the number of responses and also the depth and, and you know, interest in those responses without question. Okay. Now, what if you do get the long silence, that uncomfortable silence? Uh, how, do, how do you break the ice? So you ask a question, you get a long silence. What are some of the There's techniques you There's a lot of techniques use? you can do. You can just point to a row and walk over to the row and say, somebody from this row, volunteer. And then next time you go to a different row. So in that way, people become acclimatized and conditioned to the fact that, oh, everybody's got to participate in this fun exercise. So it's not so threatening. We're all going to have to do it. So I'll jump right in. Mm -hmm. What I sometimes do if the silence seems like it's going a bit long is then I'll, I'll turn it into a multiple choice. You know, so if I ask, uh, you know, can you, can someone here please interpret the CCG? Uh, and then there's this long silence. And I say, well, does it show sinus tachycardia or does it show VTAC? You can ask for a show of hands. Or, yeah. So, exactly. so what, what in fact you're doing there is you're actually conditioning the audience to, to being interactive. You're starting with a very simple interactive method, but then you can actually build on that and, and ask tougher and tougher questions that require some, some logical thinking on their part. All right. Now, the TED-style talk seems to be a popular framework for giving a talk. You know, less than 20 minutes and inspirational, but never too content heavy. And sometimes I feel like I'm inspired after a TED talk, but that I didn't really learn anything that I can to use on my next shift and feeling that I didn't really get a deep understanding of anything from the talk. Then there are more academic talks that are extremely content heavy that overwhelm the audience with boring detailed data. And like you were saying, Dr. Latovsky, that you want to keep it simple. So, Dr. Pensner, how do you strike a balance between being inspirational and teaching important practical content? So, so first of all, let me say I love TED Talks also. But I think it's really important to match the teaching methods with your desired outcomes. So lectures, which actually aren't dead yet, are really valuable at inspiring, at motivating, at questioning dogma, at maybe reinforcing people's practice in the audience. But if you really want to affect knowledge and skills, a lecture is probably not the most appropriate teaching method to be using. We probably want to use small group teaching, workshops, simulation, academic detailing, just to name a few. Okay, so generally speaking, Dr. Pensner, you're one of the, the key players in organizing the biggest emergency conference in Canada, uh, the Emergency Medicine Update. Is that what you look for in most of the speakers to give a, an inspirational talk? 
Absolutely. I feel that our large group plenary sessions are just what I said about inspiration, motivation, validation. And we, you know, we know that these large group presentations at these large lectures don't actually affect change in practice. Right? There's some good evidence to show that. But when we follow up those lectures with the same presenters in a small group interactive setting, we can now delve into a lot more around the knowledge and the skills. The purpose of a TED Talk is just to inspire you. And in fact, you probably should come away from a TED Talk with probably one word or one theme. For example, you should probably walk away from a TED Talk thinking about that the most important quality of leadership is what? Positivity. Use any word you want. The word that I use, when I, if I'm giving a TED Talk and I want to talk about the importance of leadership, I want people to walk away thinking that the most important quality of leadership is courage. If I was going to give a, a TED Talk on leadership, I would want people to walk away not with knowing how to be a leader, the seven great you know, styles of leadership or the, the concept of leadership or the leadership style. I would want people to walk away thinking that the most important quality of a great leader is to be courageous. That's all. That's all I would want them to walk away with. And then in a workshop, that's and then when you workshop, get into the- you can have the principles of leadership. How you know what leader? How leadership differs from management, uh, the different styles of leadership. But a TED talk is only meant to inspire, not to inform. Okay, so it's important to know your audience. So, Dr. Pensner, in your nine words, tell a story, keep it simple, manage your flow. We talked about tell a story. Let's move on to keep it simple. There are two important ways in which presentations should be kept simple. One is that the message should be simple, as Dr. Latovsky was alluding to at the top of the podcast. And the other one is that your slides should be simple. There's pretty much nothing that disengages me more than a presentation with a really ugly looking slide with 20 bullet points on it. You know, when I look back on the slides that I created when I was a resident, there were about 100 words on on every single slide. It was way too many because I was so worried that I'd miss something important. And, you know, the colors clashed. It just looked awful. You know, it, it was impossible for the audience to process what I was saying in my presentation and read a slide full of words at the same time. So thankfully, my slides have come a long way since then. But Dr. Pensioner, in what ways can slides, whether they're made in PowerPoint or Keynote or Prezi or whatever they're made in, how can slides be effective in presentations? So, so first of all, Anton, I think you brought up a good point. It doesn't matter when we talk about PowerPoint. We can interchange Keynote, Prezi, or the latest, greatest Flash-based, web-based software out there. It's all slideware. It's all presentation software. And the principles that we're talking about apply, apply to all of them. If you think back first as to why do we use PowerPoint, So the reasons, in many cases, we use PowerPoint, it's because it's expected of us. We have to hand in our slides early. We use it as a framework to build our presentation. We might use it as speaker notes. We use it as a handout. I I would offer you that if you're using it for any of those reasons, you're actually going to be setting yourself up for failure. I think there's only three reasons why we should be using PowerPoint. Number one, for emphasis. So you might simply just put a word or a phrase up on a slide and then narrate or talk around it. So we can use it for 
emphasis. Number two, we may want to augment something in our presentation, that a slide can do better than words alone. So that would be the picture is worth a thousand words. You put up a picture, you put up a graph or a table, and it's augmenting something in our presentation. The third reason is this emerging science around multimedia presentations and their effects on information processing. Okay, can you tell us a little bit more about that with the the multimedia presentations? How how do multimedia presentations affect the way we process information? So there's actually been a lot of work by the cognitive scientists in this area, particularly by a cognitive scientist in California named Richard Mayer. And Richard Mayer developed his theory of multimedia learning, where what he did in these studies is he would take university and college students, he would pop them into a room in front of a computer, and he would have them watch a multimedia presentation with video and audio and some text about different phenomena, like how lightning works, how a piston engine works, and then he would test them. He would test them immediately afterwards, he would test them a little bit after that, both on retention, what they remembered, but also transfer, whether they could take that information and transfer it to other areas. And so he develops this theory of multimedia learning, which essentially says that students learn more effectively from multimedia presentations than from presentations with narration alone. Our slides can be effective and simple, by just having a picture that can tell us a thousand words that can augment what we say. They can be effective by just having one word just to kind of cue the audience and then we talk around that word. I just want to talk a little bit more about bullet points. Why do lots of bullet points suck? Well, let me expand a little bit on what Rick said earlier. In terms of pedagogical principles, let's get back to principles and the principles of adult learning. You have to remember that people would rather read than listen. People would rather read than listen. So if your slide is busy, people are naturally going to start reading it, no matter how busy it is. And if they're busy reading your slide, what are they doing with you? Are they listening to you? No way, Jose. No way, Jose. So it's a com- 90% of the time, slides are a complete distraction, a complete distraction. So I think it's important to remember that basic educational principle that people would much rather read than listen. And you don't want that. You as a, you as a speaker want people to pay attention to you, to the message that you're conveying and to your personality. You want them to be looking at you. You want them to be listening to you. So anything on the screen that detracts from that is going to make the presentation inferior. So no matter what you have on the slide, the key is to make it simple. One word, two, three, three words, certainly not more than three or four lines, certainly not more than three or four lines. And I would suggest probably two lines is plenty. Sometimes one word is plenty because it's just meant to emphasize what you're talking about. The enhancement, the augmentation that Rick talks about of what you're trying to say. Sometimes a picture is better than words, but the message is that less is more and simpler is better. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Lutovsky, I've heard you give some great talks without any slides at all. 
Dr. Pensner, what does the literature show about how effective presentations are when there's no slides at all versus when there's slides? So, you know, what we know from the literature, which is primarily college and university undergraduate classes where they looked at lectures with PowerPoint and lectures without PowerPoint, we know that our students actually prefer lectures with PowerPoint. However, there is no difference in learning between lectures with PowerPoint and lectures without PowerPoint. Now, they define learning as performance on examinations, and we can debate that another time, the validity of that. But the point being is that there's probably no difference. What's a little more interesting is that when they have lectures with PowerPoint and what they call visually rich slides, so that would be slides primarily with pictures and really not that much text, that students preferred that and students learned more or performed better on examinations. All right. Let's get a little bit more into Mayer's theory of multimedia learning. It's I find it really fascinating. What are the main principles of this theory and and can you give us some examples of how you'd use these principles effectively in a presentation? So, you know, as we, as we talked about already, Richard Mayer has this theory of multimedia learning, which says that students learn more effectively from multimedia presentations than from presentations just with narration. And so from that, he actually developed a number of principles. And, and I'll share a few of the principles with you. One of them is called the modality principle. So the modality principle says that students learn more effectively when there are images and pictures and narration, and the presenter is narrating around those pictures, than when there are just pictures and text. So, you know, how I actually use that in in, in real life is I put up a picture and I talk around the picture, and I actually try to stay away from text on the slide. And if I am going to have text, it's going to be the text in a single word or a few words instead of a picture. Another principle is what Richard Mayer refers to as the coherence principle. So the coherence principle says that students learn more effectively from multimedia presentations that are interesting than are basic. And that's the part where you really need to learn from textbooks how to use images properly and how to use PowerPoint properly. And, and it takes a lot of work, and it's, and it's not easy. And so I would offer people to say, if you're going to use PowerPoint, make it interesting, or you might actually decide not to be using PowerPoint at all and keep it really simple. And then he talks about the personalization principle. And that is that students learn more effectively from presentations that are conversational, like we're talking here, rather than exposition, where you're presenting in a very formal, didactic manner. So here I'd just like to review Mayer's theory of multimedia learning. He says that students learn more effectively from multimedia presentations than those with only narration. Now, there's three key principles in his theory. There's lots more, but the three key ones are the modality principle, the coherence principle, and the personalization principle. So the modality principle is the one where the students will learn more effectively where there's images with narration around those images than there are when there's pictures and text with narration. The coherence principle is the one that says don't use any images or music or video that's not related to the content and the context. Distracting stuff on your slide will distract your audience. And finally, the personalization principle calls for a more conversational style. (laughs) 
So we've talked about how it's important to keep the slide simple. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what makes an effective slide? And we've talked about how uh, just having a simple image that can support what you're saying uh, or just having a couple of words that can support what you're saying. How do you actually build a good slide? So, so one second, Anton, let me get this straight. You want me to distill 20 years of practice and preparation and all the work that I've done into 90 seconds on a podcast on how to create a really effective slide? You can do it, man. Okay. So, you know, if there's sort of one statement that I would apply to effective slides in terms of actual PowerPoint, how-to, and that is keep it clear, keep it concise, and keep it consistent. And first, if we would apply that, for example, to text. So you want to have simple font, what we call a sans-serif font without the little squigglies. We want to have a font size which is large enough. Size matters. And so, you know, I'm I'm not going to give you an actual font size to use, but what I would say is whatever font size someone is going to choose to use, increase it by 50 to 100%. We want to use consistent colors throughout our presentation. The second area would be around images. So we like using images. What I would say about images and pictures is that you need to use a high-quality, large-file image. And depending on how high-stakes a presentation this is and how likely it is going to be disseminated widely, this needs to be a royalty-free image. And yes, you can download from the internet for free royalty-free images, but you might need to go to a site and purchase them. I like using photos from iStockphoto. And we want to take that image and we want to make it as large as possible on on our slide. The last area that I get asked about over and over again is how do I represent data effectively on a slide? So what I would say about that is you probably never want to replicate a graph or a table from a Word document, an Excel spreadsheet, or God forbid, from an original article into your PowerPoint slide. You need to create that graph or table new in that PowerPoint slide and really focus on what's important and eliminate everything else. So we've already heard a little bit about uh, getting rid of noise. It's about the signal-to-noise ratio. We want to increase our signal, which is really about our message, and get rid of all the extraneous information, the noise, because all of that noise really can take away from your message. And when it finally begins to walk, the clouds begin to clear. Clouds begin to clear. So let's go on to the third part of this trilogy, and that is to manage your flow. Dr. Pensioner, what exactly does manage your flow mean when it comes to giving presentations? So, so manage your flow is about moving effectively and smoothly from one transition to another. But people actually think that to manage my flow effectively, it's all sorts of things that I need to do during your presentation, which, which it is, and I'm, and I'm sure we'll talk about. But managing your flow actually starts far before your presentation in the preparation phase. Okay, so what are the key preparation things you need to know about when it comes to managing flow? So so one of the things that I actually think about explicitly are the five W's. Who, what, when, where, why. So first of all, who am I going to be presenting this to? Are these undergrads? Are these postgrads? Are these colleagues? Is it an interprofessional crowd? 
I want to get to know my audience. And I want to decide also what type of relationship I want to have with my audience. Do I want to be a teacher, a mentor, a coach? Do I want to inspire? I need to think about that before I move into the presentation. When it comes to who, do you ever ask people that you know are going to be in the audience before you talk about exactly what they'd want you to hear in your talk? Absolutely. So that goes back to, you know, what I was talking about when I start thinking about a talk is I speak to people. And that if you want the talk to be effective, it's ideally you want to speak to, you know, if you can speak to the target audience or the organizers and get an idea as to who is going to be in the audience, it really is going to help you craft your, your presentation. Okay. So who is number one in the five W's? What's number two in the five W's? What? So, so we've talked about what you're going to be talking about. That's your message. Your message is what's your point and why does it matter? You want to think about where are you presenting? So you really want to become familiar with the stage. I like to describe it as become friends with your stage. Where are you presenting? Is there a stage? Is there a podium? What's the lighting like? What's the audiovisual like? Is there a clock there for me to look at? If you can get in there before the presentation to become familiar with the state with the surroundings, it's going to really help you manage your flow. So you had mentioned podiums there. What, what's your take on standing behind a podium, Dr. Latovsky? What I, I don't like podiums. Yeah, why not? I don't like podiums. I think they uh, it's a barrier between you and the friends that you're speaking with. Would you have a would you have a barrier? Would you have a podium between you and a friend having a beer? Never. Never. So it's the same thing. A, a teaching moment is supposed to be in a relaxed conversational manner and a podium is just a barrier to engagement and connection. Without connection, there's no communication. Ban the podium. Okay. And Dr. Pensner, let's go on with the, with the five W's. We've talked about who, we've talked about what, we've talked about where. What's the fourth W? So then I think about when am I going to be presenting? So, for example, am I presenting first thing in the morning where people might be wandering a little bit late to my presentation? Am I right after lunch where there might be some postprandial sleepiness? Am I the last one of the day where people are actually going to be thinking about getting out of, getting out of that talk? The last thing that I think about, and this is actually what a lot of people don't necessarily consider before their presentation, and that is why. Why was I asked to present? On any given topic, there are lots of people that can present on that topic. And yet, I was asked to give that presentation. And there was a reason why I was asked. And I try to figure out why was I asked, and I make sure I bring that to the table during my presentation. So that reminds me, Dr. Lutovsky, I remember in some of your talks, as people are coming through the door into the room that you're giving a talk, you shake each of their hands and you say hello and you pat them on the back. How you doing? I'm I'm guessing that that's a way of engaging with your audience. Yeah, you've got to find out who you're speaking to. Again, you've got to engage. You've got to connect. That's the whole. And what you're trying to do is, besides conveying your message, you're also conveying your personality. And that's part of sharing your personality is by just getting to know people, engage with people, find out who's there, why are they there. What uh, are they uh, a medical student? Are they a pharmacist? Are they a hospital administrator? Are they a great podcast creator? Uh, you've got to find out who your audience is and you've got to engage with them. It, it makes you more personable. It, you may, it makes you less intimidating and it makes you uh, able to dialogue them in a more informal, relaxed, conversational mode. 
No, I've I've used that tip a few times myself, and I find it works brilliantly. I, I you know, I I I think it's key, and I and I think one of the things that I coach people on is that in a presentation they want to give of themselves. This is actually their opportunity to, to perform. You know, in my clinical setting, I can be a little bit shy, I can be reserved, but when I get to present, I get to go on stage and I get to perform in a persona that I may not usually get the opportunity to do. Okay. You talk about performance. Yeah, this is a performance. You're putting on a show and there's a few things that stage actors are very good at and that we might not be aware of when we're watching a stage actor, but they use their voice in a very particular way. They use their body in a very particular way. They use their eyes in a very particular way. I mean, we don't expect our presenters to be actors exactly, but what are just some basic tips that you can give our listeners about body language and voice and those kinds of things when you're performing a presentation? So these are all really important points that you're talking about. The way you project your, your, your voice is critical. You need to be confident up there. First of all, you need to be confident in front of a crowd. That's why you need to know your material inside out because you can't have any hesitation. You can't feel a lack of confidence when you're in front of a group. You have to feel 100% confident in yourself and what you know. Second of all, it is critical to alter your tone and your pitch. It's critical. You have to talk in a relaxed, conversational manner. You can't be stilted. You can't be reading from notes because people are naturally inclined to hear conversation. They're not naturally inclined to hear people lecturing in a lecture mode. So you have to do your best to just speak in simple terms without jargon and as clear as possible. When you say alter your pitch and tone, can you, can you give us an example of how you, can, how you can use that effectively? Sure. Anton. The most important quality of a great emergency physician is to be a great advocate for your patient. Powerful, Eric. Powerful. I changed my tone. I changed my pitch. And, and, and it keeps people engaged. You know that they're going to listen to every word you're going to say. Mm-hmm. And how about the rate of, when, of how you're speaking? Absolutely. Talk at a normal rate. I don't mind people talking at a normal rate. But after you say something important, you have to pause. And I I tell people to count to three before they start talking after they say something important. One, two, three. It's a long time. and People don't do it well, but they need to practice it. I tell people to practice the long pause, one, two, three, after they say something important. Once again, people can listen. And they can think, but they can't listen and think at the same time. All right. So that's the voice. What about the body language? We already talked a bit about the podium, how you don't want to have a barrier between you and your your audience. What else can you do with your body language to help make your presentation effective and engage your audience? Don't put your hands in your pocket. And if, there is, and if you do put your hand in your pocket, make sure that you've taken out any coins or keys out of your pockets before you come on stage. Absolutely. Unless it's Christmas time. Because it's, it's going to be it. distracting. It's going to be distracting. <laughs> it's true. Don't keep anything in your pockets. Try not to put your hands in your pockets. Use your hands to emphasize points like you would in real life. If you and I were having a beer together and we were talking in a relaxed conversational manner, we use our hands together, don't we? So use your hands in a conversational manner. Look in people's eyes because that means you're paying attention to the whole concept of 
receiver-driven communication. Because if I'm looking at your, your eyes, I know that you're engaged, you're listening to me. If your eyes are over there, that means I know that you're distracted and not listening to me. and I've lost you. I've got to get back to you. You have to look in people's eyes. You can't be looking at your notes. You need to know your material off by heart. You need to look in people's eyes and make sure they're still engaged. We don't look at notes when we're having a chat together over a beer, do, do we? So it's the same concept. You need to constantly be engaged with your audience and look at your audience. And, and how about the the pacing presenter? You know, this I, I, I sometimes fall into this where I, I pace back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I find when I see a, a presenter pacing back and forth that after a while, I just can't watch them pace anymore. What, what do you suggest in terms of, uh, so there's the body language using your hands, but in terms of where you are on the stage and how you move across the stage? I do, do think it's tips? important to move. I do think it's important to move. I don't like people who are stilted and are afraid to move. I do think it's useful for you to move around. And I think it's useful for people to see some kind of movement on the stage. I think that probably stimulates some neuroreceptors in the brain if they see some movement on the stage. I think that probably keeps them awake and alert and keeps some adrenaline surging. I think that's good. I think repetitive walking back and forth is probably less than ideal. But I think some movement on the stage is probably good to stimulate the neurons. And, and movement actually also allows you to physically engage the audience. You can actually walk up to people in the audience, and that physical engagement is no different than verbal communication when we're engaging the audience. Yeah, I mean, you had talked about the eye contact. You know, if you have 50 people, you can't have eye contact with all 50 people, but you can say one or two sentences on one side of the stage with eye contact with a few people, and then slowly walk over to the other side of the stage, have eye contact with them, and then when you come to the punchline, you go right into the middle, up Correct. the front, Correct. slow down your voice, leave that pause in there, and then what you say then with your punchline will be that much more powerful. Absolutely. All right, got it. So uh, we need to be a little bit of a, of a showman to, to make a good presentation. You, you, you absolutely do. It is a performance. Now, Dr. Lutovsky, you had mentioned that you have to be confident about what you're, what you're talking about, and you can't show any bit of anxiety. Yet, especially with our, our junior presenters, you know, it's, it can be really frightening for some people to get up in front of a whole bunch of people. Do you guys have any tips about if a presenter is having a lot of anxiety before they get up in front of people, uh, what they can do to try and allay that anxiety? So, so first of all, I think we need to acknowledge that when you give a presentation, it doesn't matter how experienced you are, you will be nervous. And everybody needs to figure out on their own how they're going to manage that nervousness and that anxiety. So I don't have a specific tip around that. But what I would share with you is that before a presentation, we should think about power posing. Do you know what power posing is, Anton? I have no idea, but it sounds kind of a little bit naughty. <laughs> 
So, so power posing is a term that's been coined by Amy Cuddy, who's a social psychologist in Harvard. Her and her colleagues have studied this. And, you know, what we've known for years is that our body language, our nonverbal expressions, have effects on other people and their emotions. What her and her colleagues demonstrated in their studies is that power posing, so that would be standing for at least two minutes in this dominant position, kind of like the way Wonder Woman stands with her hands on her hips or Usain Bolt after he wins a 100-meter sprint, standing in that dominant position for two two minutes actually causes physiologic changes in yourself. Your testosterone levels go up, your cortisol levels go down, you have an increased tolerance to deal with risk. And what what they showed in their studies is that they actually performed better on job interviews. So what I would suggest is that before a presentation, you don't want to be shrinking somewhere in the corner or sitting in a chair. You want to be off somewhere power posing, standing up in a dominant position to get ready for your presentation. And that actually translates into your presentation also. During your presentation, you want to think a little bit about power posing so that we can deal with the challenges of the presentation. Well, that's a great tip. What about, uh, what about visualization? You know, visualization is actually big now in in critical care, where you know you need to visualize getting that tube in when you're when you're intubating a patient, and if you visualize it before, you know, then your your chances of actually getting the tube through the cords is higher. Um, is there any role for visualization in terms of laying anxiety before you give a talk? I mean, will it help you perform better if you visualize yourself giving the talk before? Yeah, and I think part of what you have to do, especially at the beginning of your career when you haven't given a lot of talks, is that you need to practice your talks a million times before you actually do it. Practice does make perfect. You need to stand in front of a mirror. Um, I've done that in the past. I've stood in front of a mirror, watched my facial expressions, watched my hand gesticulations. I've done that kind of thing. So you really need to practice what you're doing, number one. Number two, you need to know the, the, the material inside out so you're not that, that'll alleviate the anxiety. Number three, um, I tell people to practice. If it's a 20-minute talk, I tell them to bring a 20-minute worth of material and then chop half of it out. What makes people really nervous is, is the anxiety of having to deliver all of this material in such a short period of time. Well, of course you're going to be anxious because you're delivering way too much material. You're keeping it too, you're not, you're making it way too complex and way too complicated than it should be. People can only retain a certain amount from a given lecture. So by helping people keep it simple, you have to keep it simple. You have to emphasize the point that your take-home messages should be clear and concise and minimal. And those are the kinds of things that help relieve your anxiety. Yeah, I mean, related to that is that the more prepared you are for a presentation, the more confident you're going to be and the less nervous you are. And so that comes to practice, 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 practice. And you know what? There's actually nothing really fun about practicing, but you got to put the hours in. The higher the stakes presentation, the more time that you need to put in in preparation. And, And actually, Eric, I still stand in front of a mirror when I prepare for a presentation. I practice in front of my computer. I will present that at a low stakes situation, like maybe hospital-based rounds, and then I seek feedback. And that feedback that I seek has to be from people that I trust. Because just asking people, how did I do? You know, everyone says, did a great job. That's not going to help make you better. You need to seek feedback from people that you trust 
and it needs to be honest feedback. And then the last thing that I would say is that you probably at some point want to video yourself, sit down, watch it, and really reflect upon it, because that's how you're going to become a better presenter. I've had junior faculty present lectures to me as a single individual in a room, so I can give them feedback. And uh, I'll give them feedback on their style, their mannerisms. 90% of the time, what I say is, fantastic, go back, cut out 50% of the material, come back and do it again. So, you know what, I, I want to pick up on something that Eric said a few times now, and that is about the amount of material that we are so-called going to cover the content. First of all, effective presenting is actually about uncovering material, not covering material. So that's the first thing. But I agree, if you have a 60-minute slot, you're going to want to prepare about 40 minutes worth of material. And the other thing that I would say is that you probably want to finish early. So nobody ever said... Great presentation, but he finished five minutes early. And yet, if you finish five minutes late, it's the kiss of death. You could have a wonderful presentation and people will not be happy. It's disrespectful to the audience members. It's disrespectful to the people who are coming after you. And it's disrespectful to the organization. So finish early. Yeah, let me pick on something that Rick said. The kiss of death is you go to a lecture and uh, the guy looks at his watch and says, oh, I only have six more minutes to go. And he starts to talk faster because he wants to finish all the material. That is absolutely the kiss of death. That is the opposite of what you should do. If you don't have enough time to finish all your material, just stop. Don't worry. I mean, you can give a talk at some other time on the rest of the material. But the worst thing that you can do is go faster at the end of the material without any silence, without any breaks, You've overloaded people now, and now people are going to walk out of the room with less than you would want to give them. The worst thing to do is go fast near the end of the lecture. So, so let me give you a suggestion on how you can actually manage that using technology. So I think that you want to become familiar on how to navigate your slides. And you want to put throughout your presentation what I refer to as escape hatches particularly towards the end. If I am running out of time and I'm managing my time effectively, I want to be able to navigate by skipping a series of slides, moving to another slide seamlessly so that nobody knows that I skipped all those slides and now I can manage my time. The way that I do that in PowerPoint is that during my presentation, I can actually just key in the slide number onto a keyboard and it will take me directly to that slide. And it's a very effective way to manage manage my slides. The last thing that you want to do, as Eric said, is to zip through a series of slides. You're rushed. People feel like they're missing out on something. There's no reason that people need to know that you're actually cutting out a whole bunch of your slides. Yeah. The other kiss of death that reminds me of is uh, if you do have a slide that's very busy, is apologizing for your busy slide. Correct. Yeah. Correct. No, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sorry that this slide is so busy, but... Correct. 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 Well, if it's that busy... Get, it shouldn't be there in the first place, eliminated in the first place. Being a great teacher is like being a great tennis player. What are the keys to becoming a great tennis player? Anton, you're a tennis player. The keys to becoming a great tennis player are what? Taking lessons and practicing a lot. Same thing with being a great teacher. You can take lessons on how to be a great teacher, and you need to practice a lot. 
Well, those, are, t- those are the keys to success. You know, Eric, I would take it one step further. I think it's taking lessons in tennis, practicing a lot, but then you actually have to play matches. Yeah. Because without playing matches and competing, you will actually never improve. And I think the same thing is you actually have to get up on stage and, and do the presentation and take risks. We know that you know some of the successes as for teachers and educators are the same for presenters, is that you need to take risks And risks mean, taking risks mean that sometimes you will fail. You will not be successful. And that's the only way that you're actually going to move up to the next level. I think that's a great way to wrap it up is that whether this is your first talk that you've ever given, you know, you should take some risks. Don't expect that you're going to be going up there giving a talk like Dr. Latofsky will after giving talks for 35 years, um, that this is a progression that you'll go through. The more talks you give, the better that you'll get. The more you practice you do, the better you'll get. And once you have a whole slew of talks under your belt and you've put in that time and you've taken those risks, you'll become a fantastic speaker and that can be incredibly rewarding. I I agree. And the bottom line is that you should enjoy yourself. I mean, teaching is an enjoyable profession, right? There's some people who some people who say that teaching is the most uh, honorable profession, and some people say that the practice of medicine is the most honorable profession. I happen to think that the teaching of medicine is the most honorable profession. And and aren't we lucky that we actually get to combine both? So let's do our final review here. If there's nine words to remember from this podcast to help you craft your talk, they're Rick Pensioner's mantras. Tell a story, keep it simple, manage your flow. And the two key pedagogical principles are that people can't listen and think at the same time. So you need to pause for two or three seconds after saying something important so the listeners can absorb what you said. And less is more. Also, people can't read and listen at the same time. So don't put a lot of information on your slides for people to read at the same time that you're talking. Now, there's two things you need to convey in your presentation. Your message and your personality. You need to connect with your audience and engage them. So it's best to speak in a relaxed, conversational manner and to be receptive to their reactions. Know your audience. And giving a presentation is sort of like a performance. First, you need to be confident by knowing your material inside and out and preparing a lot. Use your voice, your body language, and your eyes to connect with your audience. To get that key interaction going with the audience, think about three types of interaction. Think about interaction between you and the audience. Think about interaction between the members of the audience themselves. And think about interaction between the members of the audience with handouts. Make sure that everything on your slide is clear and concise without any extraneous information. Maximize that signal-to-noise ratio. And to manage your flow, you need to think about the five W's. Who, what, where, when, and why. And finally, give as many talks as you can take some risks, and above all, enjoy yourself.